Never underestimate the benefit of a doubt. This is the focus group. They're all business, except when they're not. It's the focus group with Tim Bennett and John Nash. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the focus group. Tim Bennett here, as always, with my good friend and co-host, Mr. John T. Nash. Find us here every Wednesday. Also, don't forget to check out our podcast, which is TFG Unbuttoned, which is released on Tuesdays. Find all of our media housed at focusgroupradio.com. While you're there, you'll also see some of our sponsors that are there, including Deep Discount. And uh, as many of you know, the whole month of September has been Criterion Month with Deep Discount and Criterion. So John will, later on in the show, give you some opportunity in a game called Pick That Flick to win some Criterion Discs. And if we run out of discs, maybe some of our famous focus group radio socks, or maybe both. Who knows? How generous is John today? I'm always generous when I'm doing the mailing lists. <laughs> Are you? <laughs> but we'll see. We'll see. I, 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 we're going to definitely run out of discs because congrats to everybody who's played. You are uh, superb with your movie knowledge. I'm, I've been impressed, actually. Uh, Bob's insisting that I make the, the uh, clues harder because the people are smarter. <laughs> and Bob's helping with the clues this time or no? No, this is all me. All he you? just suggested that I, because you know in the past you used to jokingly say, Bob tells John, to, or John tells Bob to pick that flick, whatever John that tells, is. John, John tells Bob to tell, yeah. Bob tells yeah. John to tell Bob. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> it's either way he's intertwined. Yeah. Right. So the way our show runs, for those of you that may be new listeners, and we can't imagine, but after 14 years, 15 years, we do get new people. We are the original focus group, unlike some other ones that have stole our name. But uh, John, John's okay with that, though, I think. He's just making a, hmm, yeah, let him go. Right, John? <laughs> well, you can't change. I mean, I don't know how they got that. I don't know how they got it. They didn't check. So anyway, the, um, how the show runs is John and I have a couple of news stories that we'll share with you in our banter. After our banter, and then we have... Uh, our Criterion Month game with Pick That Flick. And we'll take a quick break. We've got a business birthday, and then we have a shop talk, which is related to doubt, which John had found, which... Uh, Self-doubt, yeah. Yeah, I'm curious about, about your thoughts on it. So we'll, we'll uh, save that for toward, toward the uh, shop talk segment toward the end. So how was your, uh, how's your week going so far? We're, we're in the hump, hump day, I guess, Wednesday, the 21st Wednesday, of September. Wednesday, yep. Week's good so far. Watched the uh, Queen's funeral, a, a lot of it on Monday. You know, um, question for you. You know, the, uh, is it the, what, what are the TV awards, the Tonys or the Emmys? The Emmys, Emmys are yeah. Yeah, and you know, a, a show called Abbott Elementary won a right. great many. Have you watched it at all? I have. Okay, so... I can tell by the tone of your voice that we may be on the same page. So we haven't been watching it, but we called it up on Hulu and we watched the pilot and we watched the first two episodes. And I said this to Bob, it feels a lot like the Parks and Rec, The Office, like there's a format for this. Yeah, the mockumentary, like the, mockumentary, the, the, the one camera, the, the camera, one camera shot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The so one here's camera the shot thing. that follows them around. Yeah. If you're not into the cast, or if you're somehow not buying into it, like then the show kind of is not, it's not doing it for me, really. Well, supposedly, so the Quinta Brunson, who's, who's the, um, the writer and creator and also stars in it, her mother was a teacher for 40 years in the Philadelphia school system. Okay. So a lot of these stories apparently have storylines that True. are yeah, related to Philadelphia and her mom's experience, but also many teachers, I would imagine, that uh, have taught in inner city schools and the challenges they have. 
just getting simply resources um, as well as managing discipline problems uh, that come along with it. So I've not watched it. Shirley Ralph, um, who I actually like, is uh, she won an Emmy which, yep. uh, for it, and many will remember her from Dreamgirls. And uh, she's also a uh, very active uh, AIDS activist and was from the very beginning one of the few that's, uh, that stayed with it. And um, so I, I like her. Um, but, you know, I don't watch a lot of those. Uh, I don't watch any network TV I, I, sitcoms. I, I was catching up with um, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, the last season, or two, I fell asleep. While they were on, it just it, it not as sharp. And I'm also I I also clicked on some old Seinfeld episodes, and I love Seinfeld. I'm not sure they're aging too well. I I totally agree with that as well. <laughs> and so I don't yeah. So I I should find some new things. People have given me some new new ideas of things to watch. So. I have a recommendation for you that What's came that? to us from our producer Matt Bogart. Hello, Matt. You'll hear this. You'll smile. A couple of years ago, there was a mockumentary in the in the um, vein of, you know, Best in Show, Spinal right. Tap, that kind of thing. And it was called What We Do in the Shadows. And it was about a, a group of vampires that live on Staten Island. <laughs> well, Matthew, so right off, Matt, Matt Hellyard loves that. That's his favorite show. Well, all right. So they made, they, they had an hour and a half movie. And about two or three years later, they made a series on FX, right. which you can stream on Hulu called What We Do in the Shadows. Yeah. I'll just say this. Okay, so it's the same thing that Tim and I just were talking about with Abbott Elementary or Parks and Rec or The Office. Like it's someone's holding a camera. Some of the actors now and then break the fourth wall. You know, they're being filmed. It's the setup for this, though, that, um, that I think makes this one so unique. And we have blown through season one. It's a, it's a guilty pleasure. Each episode right. is like 23 minutes. We watch two or three, put it away for a while, and then watch some more. And inevitably there are four great laughs like i like we're pound the table kind of funny so i recommend what we did and so matt hellier likes it oh my god he's been telling me to watch it forever he was down he had an art show opening down mm -hmm. here in rehoboth beach and he uh kept pounding me to watch and he was actually re-watching some of his favorite episodes while he was here because we had uh had the streaming service oh so, well yeah one we that we it. just watched was called The Vampire Orgy, and... Is that the one where the bed falls through the, the, the floor? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> he loved that one for whatever reason. He loves when the bed... There's, a, there's some scene in one of the episodes where a bed falls from one room to the next through the, through the floor. Have you seen that yet? Oh, you know, I, maybe... You know, that does sound familiar to me. Um, it could have been... I don't know if that's season one. So the characters are just... And they're played pitch perfect. I mean, they're really well done. So the one woman reminded think... me a little bit of Elvira almost. Mm -hmm. Would that be true? Oh, it's or... so tongue-in-cheek. It's yeah. so tongue-in-cheek. And <laughs> I think that you will appreciate the whole setup again. Vampires so... that live in Staten Island. Staten Island. That's just Could have been anywhere. Could have been anywhere, but Staten Island. Staten Island, yeah. Have you been? I've asked you this before. You've not been to Staten Island, have you? I've gone over it. And I have stepped what do you mean on gone it over for, it. Yeah. <laughs> Bridge-wise. There's bridges and highways that go over Staten Island. And then I've taken the ferry to Staten Island and I've stepped off the ferry and then gotten back on. That's about it. But you know, our old compo our composer of some of our music, Jeff, lived on Staten Island for a brief period of time, especially during lockdown. Right. He was quite happy to 
relocate to Brooklyn. So, <laughs> well, James, our old producer, James, who, if you're interested in only fans of what's he, filthy DJ or something, he's he's lives in Staten Island. He loves it. He's he's, he's embraced it full on. Mm-hmm. He's got a screen house, which I forgot what a screen house was. You know what a screen house is? No. He was all excited. He assembled this thing in the beginning of summer. Essentially, it's four panels and a roof of screen. And he's outside so the bugs don't get him in the island, down the island. Screen house. I guess it's like a screen. It's, like, it it's like a portable screened in porch. Yeah. I never heard in of it. Is he Okay. Yeah. So maybe you can get a screen house upstate. <laughs> I don't know if that would approve. Well, you know, we have a screened in porch. Yeah, you don't need it. Um, what, what does Richard say? Stay in, your, stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. That would not be in your lane. Tim, you recognize this? <laughs> we were just laughing about the last time we were visiting you. We went to dinner, a beautiful dinner. We sat down, and he, they had just taken the order, and Richard does the hand gesture yeah. like, come on, let's get moving. Let's and you're like, Richard, we haven't even eaten yet. <laughs> Thank God Bob had the app. We got him out of there. Yeah. <laughs> that happens a lot. <laughs> More than it should. You tried to pay the bill once at a wedding. I said, go ahead. Woman was like, please do. <laughs> I said, Richard, we're at a wedding. It's not time to go. We're at a wedding. Uh, get, uh, get the check. Get the check. I said, <laughs> we're at the reception dinner. I'm paying. She's my friend. I said, oh, okay. Nice to have friends like that, huh? The server looks at him. He just said, whatever. Yeah. So, anyway, welcome to my world. So, Mr. Nash. Uh, what caught your eye this week? What caught your eye? Here's what Tim and John found. What caught my eye is, in my opinion, a sort of a gruesome story, and it involves Ooh. cosmetic surgery. And the headline simply is, men paying to get taller by having their legs broken. Have you heard of this? No. Okay. GQ ran an article that everybody's picking up on about a surgeon in Las Vegas who specializes in adding three to six inches to people via a procedure where he, where he breaks your bone, your leg bones, inserts some kind of a device, and every day on your phone you, 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 you hit something and it actually expands the joint or the, wherever he put this device oh my in. God. Three to four painful months 75,000 bucks to 150,000 is the cost of this thing. So the doctor breaks the patient's femurs or thigh bones and inserts metal nails into them that can be adjusted. The nails are extended a tiny bit every day for three months with a magnetic remote control. It can take months to slowly lengthen the bones and for the legs to heal. One software engineer who had this done this procedure done told GQ he spent the first three months after his surgery alone in his apartment and ordered delivery food going during that time to go from five foot six to five foot nine. The procedure costs between 70,000 and 150. <laughs> yeah, I know be, depending on whether the patient wants to grow three, four five or six inches. And the common denominator in this doctor's client base is that they're wealthy, but they vary by profession. GQ reported that he treated CEOs, actors, and finance employees, and a bevy of high-earning tech workers, mostly men but some women, have come in for the procedure. So I went to the actual GQ article, and the thing that stuck out for me um was this paragraph here about why someone would do this. Why would someone like the, the person they're interviewing was named John? Why would, this, why would someone like John, handsome, confident, funny, a father of to three, shell out for a procedure that costs more than a Tesla and results in months of agony for a couple of extra inches? 
It's not like he was particularly short at just shy of the Amer average height of an American man, five foot nine, but the opportunity to be above average was too good to pass up. He said, I noticed that taller people just seem to have it easier, John says, laughing. He shrugs. The world seems to bend for them. And this was a recurring theme throughout this article, this idea that these guys, and mostly a lot of the clients that this doctor deals with are Silicon Valley guys, rich, you know, tech workers, programmers. Average height is five, 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 six. They would love to be five, nine, maybe even six feet tall. Oh but all of them said the same thing about feeling less than because they weren't tall. It was really fascinating to me. I, I think there was a lot to it beyond the agony of having this done. Well, right? here's what they don't get. Small guys tend to have great bodies. Yeah, more beautiful. so than tall guys because they're like gymnasts, right? And it's easy to grow muscle. Compact, and, yeah. Right, more so than people that are tall like us. Would you like to be taller? How, what are you, 6'1"? 6'1". I'm, 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 Would you I like no to be taller? To be taller, no. I'd like to be 6'4". Yeah, I don't um, know why. I just picked it. But I, 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 I think 6'4 would be nice, but I'm not sure I would break my bones and go through the, the pain of this. No, no. I don't get it. I, I, thought, you, I thought you were going to talk about a penis lengthening. No, the surgeon who does this also recommends that, um, you know, he doesn't recommend the procedure for athletes since it could likely decrease their ability. And many of the patients GQ spoke with said they didn't tell people they had the procedure done. So one guy in the GQ article had it done went back to his friends and his socializing and one guy's like, Hey, they were, he was almost eye level with his tallest friend. And he's like, Hey dude, something's different. You're bigger. You're standing taller. Hey, cowboy boots and the guy on. that had the leg lengthening done says, no, you're, you, maybe you got shorter. <laughs> Trying did, to... I wonder if, did they show a before and after picture? Yeah. They, the GQ? GQ article actually had, um, the individual that had the surgery done standing at a you know, when you were a kid, you would have the thing on the wall, the measurement chart right. that you'd stand against, right? So they had him, st they had one before and one after, and it was quite noticeable, actually. Huh. I can't, well, I, I can't imagine people do it. People get implants in their butts and their chests and their arms. So th the reason this really caught my eye in, in a fascinating way was years and years ago, I did a charity bike ride. On, and on day two, I ended up riding with two guys and, and uh, they were both plastic surgeons from Florida. And we were just, I just said, what are the most common things that people request? And, and they, had, they, they said, well, let's start with men. Do, do you know, do you, what, what do you think is the most common thing a man would have done from plastic surgery? From plastic surgery, lipo? No, that's the second one. Eyes? Yes, that's it. Number one is eyes. So eye lift or just eye, you know, fixing. Right. He said, these guys come in, they have it done. We never see them again. He said, sometimes people come in for lipo, but men are usually eye lifts. This, the reason this caught my eye is because this is really dramatic. And this is someone who says, it means you say to yourself, I'm going to spend 100,000, let's just say 100,000, and I'm going to be in agony for three or four months. I'm going to go, and I want to be taller. But it's talk about a commitment, right? I mean, and I can imagine all the stuff that might go wrong. You know, well, and I was going to say, what if one, one leg took and the other one didn't? Um, yep. so all of a sudden you, you now, well, yeah, no, there's, it's, it's too fraught with, with danger, but I, complications. I don't, yeah, yeah. complications. I, I don't, I don't, um, but you know, as people and someone would say, well, you know, you're tall, so you, you don't understand or something, you know, I, I've heard that before. Well, you're, you know, you're tall. Well, one of the guys in the GQP said that, um, he would be working out at a gym 
And he says, he said, I would just notice, maybe he's hyper aware of it, but he would notice when a tall guy would come onto the gym floor or, or want to work in with somebody or whatever. He said there was, he just said, I noticed there was a deference paid to the person with the greater height. Now that again, I could think that could be internal or that could literally be our culture nodding in a direction, right? We tend to, we tend to elect uh, tall Tall presidents and, and I think that is one of the challenges Pete Buttigieg has and why he didn't like to be photographed on stage with the others because as he's noticeably, um, obviously under six feet, but I don't know what his actual height is. But yeah, I, I, I suppose I could see that in terms of, of commanding a room or commanding a commanding presence. And those those Palo Alto guys all got problems anyway, beyond being <laughs> tall. Just to put it mildly, yeah. Don't you think? Yeah. So so speaking of California, um, I saw this came up and I laughed. Fred Franzia, the creator of Two Buck Chuck and champion of affordable wine, has died. So uh, Fred Franzia is the man behind Charles Shaw, the Charles Shaw brand of wine, which affectionately is known as Two Buck Chuck, which you could buy at Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's. I never, I don't think I've ever had it because they don't sell alcohol at the Trader Joe's out east in a lot of them. Have you ever tried this Two Buck I've Chuck? I've never had Two Buck Chuck, no. So uh, he, was, he died last week at 79 years old. The, uh, two, so the Franzia family, actually, that box wine, the mm-hmm. Franzia box wine, is his family. But he's not affiliated with that or associated with it. He's still angry about it. Uh, <laughs> his father sold the Franzia box wine business uh, to his uh, or to Coca-Cola. And Franzia was young at the time and was mad because he felt his father should have kept it. He said, my father wasn't a fighter. And uh, he said for many years they, they did not speak because he was so upset by the fact that he had sold the wine. He said, uh, my dad just folded. And uh, he and I had gone through a period of no communication and when they sold it. Uh, but so he started this Bronco wine company. And he, he was a bit of um, kind of a rebel, which I also find funny, funny about him. He said he wanted to start, um, he and his brothers wanted to start a high-quality wine company that had value for the wine consumers. So in other words, he said nobody should have to spend more than $10 for a bottle of wine, which uh, I agreed with him. He said he... He decided that Bronco Wine Company would sell a less expensive, uh, great wine. He said, uh, I could sell wine less expensive than a bottle of water. He said, they're overcharging for water, you know, don't you get it? And uh, so he developed this wine, and um, it was only $1.99 a bottle. And uh, they said it was actually quite good. It was sold exclusively at Trader Joe's for many years. It's now more than that. It's probably in the 2 to $3 range, they said now, depending upon where you go. But they said people would grab it for $1.99, take it home, and um, people liked it quite much. They said a, a wine connoisseur had said that the flavor profile of the Charles Shaw, quote, two-buck chuck, tends to be very fruit-forward, very likable, very approachable. It has a surprising amount of tannin and other types of complexity, which is why people were so wowed by the price and the fact that you can get it for $2. It said it did not taste like a cheap, simple, syrupy wine that you would normally expect for the price point. So um, famous for uh, his value. Two wine. buck Chuck. I love doing, uh, I did a wine tasting for our friend, um, it was Mark's birthday. So Mark and Carl, a few other friends came. And we did a red wine and I did a, the cheapest red I could find was a, I think it was either a Behringer or something for five ninety nine or three ninety nine. I couldn't find the Tisdale. 
And then I did an $11, a $20, $40, and a $90. I'm guessing everybody picked the cheapest wine. And I, John, I was the only one who knew. And so I had all the, the glasses and poured it out. And when the results came in, I said, everybody, give me your rankings, one, two, three, four, and, and why. And they all picked number three, which was the cheapest $5.99 wine, or might or $3.79, somewhere. I mean, it was the lowest one. The $90 came as nobody picked, which I was kind of pissed about. I thought, it'd be, you know, 90 bucks. <laughs> But it, you know, so it was a fun birthday game and birthday thing to do. But then everybody started, well, I picked it because maybe it's the way you served it. Maybe you, I said, no, mm-hmm. it was all the same temperature. Mm-hmm. It was all the same kind of glass. I didn't, you didn't have mm-hmm. one different mm-hmm. glass or other. It was all the same temperature and it was all the same, you know, same pour, same sort of implement you were drinking out of. Well, maybe it was the order you did them in. You know, they had all kinds of excuses, excuses. as to why they picked the cheap yeah. one. The same thing happened the year earlier. I did white wines. Same thing happened. The cheapest one got picked, and that was a Tisdale. It was three seventy nine or three ninety nine, which is very drinkable wine. But people people want to feel that they've got to spend twenty, thirty, forty, eighty dollars for a bottle of wine. So this so totally falls into the category of we did this vodka sampling once on. Oh my Sirius, god! Remember that? And it was uh, Rob, was it Rob from SPI? And one of the one of the vodkas was t- Taka Vodka. Taka Vodka, yeah. Like it's practically paint thinner, right? And and I think that one. And then another time we had. Uh, hey, wait a uh, minute. The best part about that was the absolute guy picked it. Yeah. <laughs> it is like, please don't air this show. Too bad it's live. Too bad it's live. Yeah. <laughs> and the other one was when we had the Eric from the tasting room on. Yep. Same deal. We had this like we all picked one that was affordable. <laughs> as yeah. Yeah, I love those things. That was, uh, that's what caught my eye this week. So as we, um, as we mentioned earlier on the show, Deep Discount's been with us here on uh, the Focus Group. And this month is Criterion Month, and we play a game called Pick That Flick. And I'm going to turn it over to Mr. Nash and explain to you all about the game and how you can win a disc from Criterion. Take it away, Mr. Nash. Last week of our Pick That Flick Criterion Collection game, and it's simple. I'm going to play a clue, an audio clue. If you know the name of the movie this clue was taken from, uh, send us uh, your guess to letters at focusgroupradio.com. That's letters at focusgroupradio.com. You might want to include your mailing address if it's an email you don't check too often. Uh, But that's it. It's pretty simple. And I want to just thank everybody for participating, sending your great notes. A lot of people have memories of the game being played on Sirius. I'm going to do all the gifting and the winners in about two or three, well, after these shows air, because I'm going to like make sure everybody either gets socks or a movie. <laughs> so uh, here is this week's clue, the last week of the Criterion sale. For the last last time we're playing Pick That, like I should say, for Criterion Month. But here you go. I heard a very sad story about a girl who went to Bryn Mawr. She squealed on a roommate, and they found her strangled with her own bazier. All right, I Tim's like puzzling, puzzling. Let I me think play this it again. One might for be you. one I know for a change. It could be, yeah. I heard a very sad story about a girl who went to Bryn Mawr. She squealed on her roommate, and they found her strangled with her own bezier. <laughs> All right. <laughs> if you know the name of that movie, letters at focusgroupradio.com, and you might want to include your mailing address as well. Uh, we do have a new release this week, and the movie is called Vengeance. This is a movie I have not heard of before. 
Brooklyn podcaster named Ben came to West Texas at the behest of his family in of Abe, Abilene Shaw, an aspiring actor and occasional hookup, found dead in an oil field. The Shaws weren't buying the cops' conclusion that it was just an OD. And Ben's choice to pry into the case and get some broadcast material takes some absurdly bizarre turns. Satirical whodunit. There's a key. Satirical whodunit stars Ashton Kutcher as well. So the release this week is Vengeance. And it took me a minute to think this, but satirical whodunit, which means it's for the laughs. Very good. So there you go. So um, again, Criterion Collection, we want to thank Sarah over there. We want to thank our partner at Deep Discount for providing all the discs that we're giving away. Want to rewind a little bit? You'll hear the clue again. It's called Pick That Flick. If you know the name of the movie, letters at focusgroupradio.com. We are going to take a super quick break. And when we return, we have a business birthday and a shop talk. So stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Focus Group with Tim and John. Learn more at focusgroupradio.com. Now back to the focus group with Tim and John. Available pretty much everywhere. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the focus group. Tim Bennett here with John T. Nash. Be sure to learn all about us and all of our programming at focusgroupradio.com. One of our segments here that we've uh, we've done and we we keep doing because uh, people tend to like it is our business birthday. So without further ado, Mr. Nash. Everyone does celebrity birthday greetings, but the Focus Group is the only show in the universe that celebrates business birthdays. So born today, September 21st in 1865, is Ezra Hasbrook Fitch, <laughs> co-founder of the modern, well, it's not modern really anymore, but co-founder of Abercrombie and Fitch. And there is some disagreement. Uh, most uh, Everyone says September 21st. There are some uh articles written where they use september 27th but the most reputable ones particularly npr use september 21st so that's the date i'm going with but uh so ezra died as uh, at 64 years old in 1930 and uh he was a very much an avid outdoorsman and he had what he considered he he worked in an area where they made asphalt and he had done accounting he'd done a bunch of things he came from a wealthy a uh, wealthy family in New York City. And um, he used to support the store, and the owner was David Abercrombie. So it was Abercrombie Sporting Goods. And they used to sell to a high-end, it was an outdoor equipment store, and they sold to a very high-end and an elite group of outdoorsmen. And around the turn of the century, they said people were just starting to um, take into account of the importance of recreating and doing, doing uh, hobbies outside of just work and um, you know, staying alive. So he had um, bought some land up in Connecticut, right in Washington Depot area. Mm, I and, didn't know that. And he had a train, private train car that would go from New York City up there and drop him off. And uh, so the family lived up there. They also, he had a fishing lodge in the Catskills. He did, he did work in the, um, I, I, I was pulling the name up, and I, Coxsackie? Coxsackie. Yeah. Coxsackie, yeah. yeah. So there's something called the Roswell Reed Estate. Up there was also, yep. that's where his family uh, had as well. So he, he decided he was bored with his career. And so he decided to um, convince, and they said it actually took him a while to convince Abercrombie to let him come on board. 
And so uh, in 18 uh, or 1900, Fitch bought a major share into Abercrombie, and then they added Abercrombie and Fitch. And uh, they had a disagreement, though. Abercrombie, as I said, wanted to still keep it very elite and um, expensive, and Fitch wanted it to be that, plus also accessible and approachable for the everyday man. They could never get along. Uh, he said can't was in his vocabulary, so he just badgered Abercrombie enough to where Abercrombie ended up selling his portion <laughs> to Fitch. And so Abercrombie Fitch was owned by, owned by Fitch. Fitch. So, right. So he, um, and that happened in 1907. They said during his era there running the company, he had great success. He expanded uh, the company in many different areas. He created the first mail order catalog, which was released in 1909. And in that catalog, he also is credited with introducing Meijong, Meijong, um, from China, the Mahjong. Game, Mahjong, yeah. to, um, to the American public because he would highlight it in sold sets in his magazine. And sold oh, that's sets in the why store. you sent a picture of, of the Mahjong, the Mahjong pieces. Mahjong. Yeah, it's like, yeah. A like a version of Dominoes. It's a, a Have oriental, you ever played it? Yeah. No, and it's, it's, I love watching people play it. They go um, quick, don't they? They very fast, yeah. I've watched it on TikTok. They spread around, spread around, and I, I don't yeah. know what they're doing. I don't know if you just match symbols or I'd like to learn how to play. Like I'd like to learn how to play bridge. But you know guess play bridge? what? No, I don't. And bridge is very complicated and takes yeah. a long time to learn. Mahjong is not quite as hard to learn. But then, of course, you have to learn the strategy. But learning the rules is not as complex as bridge. <laughs> well, neither rather. I guess we won't do either. We'll stick with Scrabble. <laughs> So in 1928, he retired from the company. He left it under new management. He died, as I said, uh, in 1930, and he died on his, he, he had built a 60-foot cruising yacht called Content, and he had that docked out in Santa Barbara. And uh, he decided he was going to go move and live on the boat after he retired. So he, he left the East Coast to go to the West Coast, and then ended up dying on the boat uh, wow. a couple days later when he moved on there. And they tried to sell the yacht, and eventually... Um, Many many years later, the uh, the yacht was bought by Johnny Depp. Oh my actor. God! And it's seriously, his, yeah. And they said the boat is uh, was sold and purchased by Johnny Depp eventually after it changed hands a few times uh, in the early 1900s. They said it's now a tour boat in British Columbia. And uh, but Fitch and his family, his wife who was a painter, uh, who lived until 1960, they're buried up in Washington, Connecticut, and every year. They do some sort of reenactment at the uh, what's now called the gun school. They don't call it the gunnery anymore, John. But there's the uh, in the Rums, uh, Rumsey Hall. So they mm -hmm. do yep. they do an enactment there with all the descendants from the Fitch family, and they put together because um, he used to do an agricultural fair fair there, or whatever. But they partake in that each year uh, in Connecticut. So um, happy birthday to Ezra Fitch, we known as Abercrombie and Fitch. You included a very sexy picture for me. Thank you. Well, I, you know, I struggled because there was a lot of them you could have picked from. But I, I wondered, I'm glad you brought up the picture because I'm wondering, we all know what happened to Abercrombie and Fitch, right? It got bought by Limited Brands, I think it was. Yeah. And then they went off the deep end and got rid of the croquet sets and brought in nude models. or, or Bruce Weber, I, basically. You know, you'd be embarrassed to carry the bag around if, if, if you shop sometimes. And so I wondered what he would have thought of what happened to the Abercrombie brand, Abercrombie and Fitch brand? I don't know. I, Tim, I love this birthday because I remember there was a original Abercrombie and Fitch down by the South Street Seaport. Yep. You'd go in and there would be fishing tackle, cologne, 
croquet sets, hats, anoraks, like outdoor stuff, polo right? mallets. Yeah, there you go. There you go. And then yeah, for y'all, your polo playing tense. And then fast forward, you know, eight or nine, 10 years, maybe, uh, maybe it wasn't even that long. Suddenly you see every, you know, young people and parents yeah. carrying these bags with these incredible Bruce Weber images of half or, or naked men or half naked men. And if you were a gay New Yorker back in the 90s and early 2000s, you're, you thought this was the most hysterical thing because all yeah. these bags are everywhere. And of course, they had the shirtless greeters in front of the stores, the whole bit. But it was the farthest thing from a, a tackle and an outdoor, you know, like kind of supply store than, it, than ever, right? Well, and during the transition, they had the clothing quality was fantastic. I still have pieces from that era before they started putting the big AF or Abercrombie and stuff. There's just the indoor label, but there's the quality of some of the flannel shirts and some of good. the rugby shirts and things I have is unbelievable. I still wear them now. And uh, so I used to love the stuff, but you're right. The, they also did a great, um, they were one of the first stores. There's only a handful that actually used smell to lure yeah. people in. Remember the stores that, because they would pump in that smell of that. Uh -huh. Yeah. You'd come in, but you're right. And then it got to the point where as we got older, I think it was around, you know, 2000, 10 or, two, when, or 2001, you, you didn't feel comfortable going in there. It was almost a little <laughs> bit weird. Didn't you think it was a little weird? And then they had Hollister, which it was also a brand from them, yep. which had that little pinpoint lights and stuff. I remember going in with my mother. She goes, I can't see a thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's the point. The lights Mom, out. That's the point. You know, it was just a little pin light on each shirt with, with hit or something. But yeah, I, um, they lost their way, I think. They had a good run for, you know, when they changed it, what, for about four or five years and then well then they mm -hmm. got in trouble for um isn't there a documentary about them for, for racial yep. profiling or something you and i watched that documentary and we were amazed there's all sorts of fallout bruce weber was accused of yep. sexual misconduct with the models the guy that ran um abercrombie you know all that stuff leaked out about mm -hmm. how he if you flew on the private plane how you had to dress <laughs> What you had to do. I mean, it was just insane, right? The models had to be a certain size. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you only weren't allowed to wear certain things during certain times. You weren't allowed to look them in the eye. Yeah, no, yeah. Cra crazy enough. I I'll have to watch that again. Um, it was a watch good watch. That. And yeah. it, it also, uh, it, the arc of that story matched the arc of many retail chains who had a flash in the pan or something unique about them. But it was the Abercrombie guys that used to stand out in front of the store the whole bit. They had a lot of firings. And a lot of management issues with not hiring. You know, they had all these secret codes. You don't want someone right. in the front of the store. You want back a house, you know. Yeah. So they got caught by all that. We'll hire you. We're back here. Yeah. You're going to be in the back room. in the storeroom. I want to be in the front. <laughs> well, didn't have that problem at Marshall's and Walden Books, did we? No, they did not. Everybody <laughs> to the front. Yeah, so that was our... Uh... What was our business birthday? The um, our shop talk. John had found this, and I'm curious, to John, on how you um, digested this. I guess, but the headline is: I'm a behavioral scientist. Here's the three-step exercise I've been using to beat personal doubt. So they question: Have you ever doubted yourself? And they said it's a human experience to fret over who you are, and why you do what you do, and what direction you're heading in. So for those superhumans who claim to not experience any self-doubt. My professional opinion is that you're lying to yourself. I said that's kind of like someone says, oh, I don't have any regrets. Everyone has a regret. But yeah. I don't care what it is. People have regrets. Not, nothing's wrong with that. So 
they talked about personal uncertainty and informational uncertainty. And I'm going to post this to our Facebook page because I thought it was a good lesson. I didn't, I didn't do the chart yet, but I thought it might be something interesting for me to do. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners would like to try to do the chart as well, which had the, uh, the, con- the self and personal, personal attributes and self-concepts. But what was your takeaway from this? Well, you set it up perfectly. Um, personal uncertainty is extremely different from informational uncertainty, as Tim just noted. Because with informational uncertainty, you can easily find out things that you need to know to fill in your knowledge gaps. But personal uncertainty is something altogether different. And the way the the writer says it, it's this mischievous version of stress-inducing self-doubt that can't be resolved by finding out more things. You're battling yourself. You're battling you. You can't Google you to find things out. So this shows up, this idea of personal uncertainty shows up a lot in our careers in in job searching and in that day-to-day what makes me happy what what am i good at doing and so this idea he comes up with three ways of kind of managing personal uncertainty and doing a better job of finding out your core identity um you know what are the things you're good at problem solving what are the things you're good at in terms of people management skills etc and um and he goes further to say uh the solution is to dive into self-complexity. So he says, high achievers have multiple layers to themselves. They diversify their identity portfolio, so to speak, like a broker does with his or her assets in order to mitigate financial uncertainty. So what he means is the opposite in this case is someone who has only one version of themselves. I'm a plumber, I'm an electrician, I'm a, right. a car salesman or whatever. For these people, if there's a bit if there's a hit to that version of themselves, they don't have any other places to fall back on, and they and the self doubt becomes all consuming. So, in order to get around either of these, he says for, there's a couple of exercises, and one in particular that he that Tim alluded to this little chart thing that you create. So, why don't you kick us off with that, Mr. Benham? Well, be, before that, I did want to ask you about this: the battling, um, where it says you're battling yourself, and something yeah. you can't Google. I wondered if there's so many people that I know that have. Uh, um, struggle with depression. And I wondered if this was, I wonder if this was a form of that, this anxiety or irritability or, or anger and questioning of yourself. I wonder if that's been misdiagnosed as depression sometimes. I don't know. That's a great question. I don't, I can see where this type of thing. You know, if you always would... doubted yourself, if you doubt yourself all the time, I'm, I'm no good. I'm not going to get anywhere. I'm not, and it I could lead it, to depression, yeah, yeah, for certain, yeah. But I'm not sure that, uh, you know, when I, I always comment on this when I was, years ago, I, I had an experience where someone was talking about depression and and they were clinically depressed and they were on medication and they asked me what I thought depression was. I'm like, well, I have some days when I'm down and I'm blue. No, 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 that's not. Depression's when you can't get out of bed. You right. don't want to get out of bed. You don't have the energy to do anything. If you don't want to lift your head, I mean, I've never experienced that. I mean, which would just be horrible, right? Yeah, maybe a day or two. <laughs> so, what so, was the question you would ask? You would ask. I'm sorry, I got I got you off track there. All right. The I question about you. You would ask me a question before I I went back. To oh, the, I said if you want to kick off the three step thing. So before before Tim does this, starts to talk about the exercise this guy comes up with to find yourself. I think this is an intriguing thing. Um, the pandemic threw a lot of monkey wrenches into people's lives. And especially right. if you're in your, let's say you're in your 50s and you've, had, you've enjoyed a career in a certain part 
you know, of the economy. Maybe you're a book editor, or maybe you're you know a, an advertising person, whatever. But the world changed pretty quickly in two and a half years, and a lot of people are thinking about what I want to do as my last chapter, all this other stuff. But when we sit down to do this stuff, and I'm talking about resumes and what do I, who do I want to be when I grow right. up? And you're saying that to yourself and you're 54, <laughs> 55, whatever, even in your 40s or 30s. We are the, our hardest, we're, we're our own worst enemies in terms of what do I want to do? What am I good at? And these exercises help you kind of sort through the multiple things that you are and the multiple talents that you probably have. And then it helps you prioritize what are the things I want to try to sell? What are the things I, I'm good at? And what do I want to pursue? So right. I'll just set it up that way. Does that sound right? Bob? Yeah, no, I think, that's, I think that's right. And, and so the important part of the exercise, and there's three steps here, is that we are all multi-layered people. And so in order for you to diversify yourself, like they use the example of a financial advisor would diversify a, por a retirement portfolio. Um, is for you to take these steps in terms of how to, you know, find the other aspects of yourself, which would help with doubt. The first one was put away the computer. And they said, it's as easy as setting a timer and removing all distractions. This means no phone, no computer, no digital devices of any kind. It's old school pen and paper. And they said, this is important because the pen is mightier than the keyboard. And I never heard of this. The somatosensory? Somatosensory. Somatosensory. Experience of putting pen to paper sends signals to the brain that help encode and affect lasting cognitive change. So this is not something you would do on your computer. It's take out a piece of paper and draw a diagram, which you and I both love to do. That's how we do our presentation still. Yep. What was the second thing? So following up on putting away the computer and the pen is mightier than the keyboard, it's this idea that when we handwrite, we are making a, a, a very strong connection between thought and word. So that leads to the second one, which is second, write about different versions of yourself. With pen in hand, the next thing to do is think of different versions of the self. Importantly, it's a pragmatic exercise in self-reflection. It's not a time to question one's own sense of self from an abstract philosophical view. Doing this can lead to even greater strength. So he says, for with a pragmatic focus, the next thing is a drawn map out a hypothetical self-concept. And uh, what he did is he put an example below and I'll describe it to you, but it's um, usually a person will have at least two self concept maps. For example, one is a work self map and the other is a life or a non-work self map. So what he drew here was like um, a cascading diagram. So there's a box at the top and it says work hypothetical self and in it he put you. And then the next row down was self concepts that people had come up with or that someone had written down. And, Self-concept is a, he's a senior analyst, ad campaign guru, networker, programmer, training specialist. These so are like, like what's your personal or, or what's your professional ID, right? That's kind of your excuse me. It, it would be like what's your professional ID? Yeah, yeah. So if you if you had you were a creative director, you were yeah. a, a car, um, animator, you know, dot dot dot, right? I, Videographer, whatever it may right. be, and then the personal attributes under that. In this case, he has hardworking, tech savvy, social focused, disciplined, respectful, and you see how those are different than the actual tasks at hand. Um, so the middle row that Tim just indicated, the senior analyst, whatever, those are someone's self concepts of what they are good at doing, and the bottom row is that personal thing of yeah. These are my attributes. And then the last piece here. I wonder, was, before you go to that piece, I, I, before you finish there, I was wondering about the personal attributes. These were all very positive. 
I thought, I wonder if somebody said, yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm undisciplined or I procrastinate or I, I wondered if, or this was all supposed to be positive. You know, Tim, I would say that if, if, if you're doing pen to paper and those things come out, I think they're valid, right? Because right. that also tells you about your work style and, and how engaged you are. Right. Okay. And then the um, and then you have to rank these things, right? Yes. Yeah. So they said from zero to ten, rank each of these uh, either the attributes or the concept, the self concepts or the personal attributes from a zero to ten. Ten being the the most uh, most important in terms of uh, how you score. And then you'll come to, um, I guess, connect to figure out how where your strengths are in terms of doubt, right? I I don't. That was the only part that I was a little bit trying to figure out is, okay, once I get that number, what does that tell me? Well, you know, he's using this kind of Venn diagram thing, and, right. and there are other ways of doing this. Um, you know, if you've ever worked with a career coach or someone who's um, helping you guide this process, they might just ask you to write your 10, 10 attributes that you think about yourself, and then you match that, or you look at another list. But he basically said that... Um, once you connect the like, so he's done this diagram thing, and right. once you can, and Tim's going to post this to Facebook. But once you connect the lines, you have a much better concept of you know, you get a clear sense of what part of yourself is that you you are most certain about. Right. And going all the way back to this headline and how we set this up, the one that you the most, the part of yourself that you have the least amount of doubt around. I'm a good speaker. I'm a good co collaborator. You know, I, I'm a tech, you know, I'm tech savvy. I'm all these. And when you see the clustering of these things that are all good, those are the areas that are your strongest because they lack, you don't doubt those areas about right. yourself. You have good strength there. And then, and his conclusion with his diagram was that he was solid, stable, and predictable. And that those were things that were certain about him that he would never, never doubt. He was also creative. Uh, so I, yeah. I thought I thought that would be interesting to see. I didn't know if it was a self fulfilling prophecy when you did it, or, and that's why I wondered about some of the attributes. Maybe, but I, I guess it's uh, being honest. He doesn't give you an exact number to do right in terms no. of attributes. He just did this did this diagram. But as John said, we'll post this to Facebook, and uh, you can take the test and do it yourself and um, see if you agree with it. But I thought it was a good exercise because I think we all have doubts at certain times. And or you get kicked down, and particularly with people, as John noted, with the pandemic, kind of turned everyone upside down, particularly with career. And um, you can beat yourself up a lot, but this would help you say, you know, these are the things of, of which I don't have doubt. Yeah, and ultimately that's a really positive thing. Like, so I, I know that we we might have confused folks with how you get from A to B to C, but basically it's, you know, if you follow some of this stuff on paper. You might not have to do a chart or something, but you will notice very quickly that there are clusters of things that you gravitate to because they are things you don't have doubt about. You do know you do it. You, you know you do it very well. And I think at the end of the day, this is a very self-empowering exercise because it helps you plow through all this doubt. You know, um, <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm saying it as if I've experienced it because I do all the time. It's like, right. you know, you know, and, and many people relate to me saying this, like, all of us can do a couple of different things pretty well. Right. But let's say it comes down to someone saying, what is the one thing you want to do that you're great at? 
And then you have to make a choice. It's like, uh. <laughs> I remember I had, I had a boss many years ago that said something, and I, I didn't believe it at the time, or I didn't quite understand it, but I remember he said, there's something that every one of us does better than anyone else here in the room. You know, there's one mm. thing that you can do better than anyone else here. And whether that was professional or whether it's a personal thing, um, and I always remember that because I thought, okay, you know, there is something here that I probably can do or I probably am more confident in, uh, in doing than anyone else in here. And there's probably things that they, they do better than me, which you have to understand as well. But I always thought that was interesting that there's oh, something, I, there's something I you do better. I think it's a wonderful observation yeah. because it's true, right? Yeah. You know, you could, somebody could say, you, you could, yeah, I mean, it could be storytelling. It could be. Yep um follow up it could, it could be, be interacting with other people it could right. be you know the the friendly the, the glue that holds the department together right you know a lot of this shows up with when it comes to like resume and job hunting um it's the thing that people dread you know it's they you know why they dread it because you have to sit down and write about yourself right and there are folks that we all know who do this really well they use all the buzzwords i am a i do this i'm a collaborator i'm an interpartment yeah, they get hired people. and they stay there nine months yeah and then they, well <laughs> Zing, Tim! I know right? what you're talking about. No, there's a lot, a lot of them. Look, look at and LinkedIn. Then there are I look at people who really with, struggle. You know, I look at some LinkedIn profiles, and they have eleven jobs over eleven years. I'm like, oh, eleven okay. years, yeah. And, and again, it depends on age. But that was that's funny you bring that up because someone recently commented to me that I am a product of a certain generation that yes. valued longevity in a job over leapfrogging around and i just thought that was funny because back in the day if you, you were at a job for 10 or 12 years you're a good candidate now if you're there for nine months that doesn't matter you want yeah. to move on yeah loyalty doesn't mean much anymore yeah so i think that you know again check this out on when tim posts this to the facebook uh page it's, it's a very short article but i think it's it's an interesting exercise that you can uh can do to kind of get your mind in the in the flow of how i want to talk about myself and who do i want to be or, or, or I'm already this person. How can I convey that and, and, and be strong with it? All right. That's going to wrap it up for us, folks. We want to thank you for joining us today. A big thanks to Deep Discount. The, uh, the release this week is Vengeance. And um, we played Pick That Flick. So if you want to rewind and, and hear the audio clue and then send your guests in, by all means, do that. Look out for TFG Unbuttoned on Tuesdays. And of course, our show on Wednesdays. And everything is always available at focusgroupradio.com. Everybody have a great week and stay safe. It's The Focus Group with Tim Bennett and John Nash. Accessible on all platforms. Subscribe, like, and rate us on your platform of choice. Learn more at focusgroupradio.com. That was a stunning focus group.